grace. Now, this is a word that's thrown around by Christians all the time. There's at least eight churches in Tulsa alone that have grace as part of their name, much less how often they say grace in other places in life. This concept is used in business and school life, the grace period that you may have to turn in an assignment in either one of those settings. And, of course, Amazing Grace is the most published hymn of all time finding itself published in over a thousand different hymnals since its writing. Amazing grace, as it happens, is also projected into the future. If you have seen Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you know that there is a funeral scene in this movie in which Amazing Grace is played on bagpipes. I kid you not, even in the future, Amazing Grace has made its way there. Yet for all of its ubiquity, for, every, for that it's everywhere all the time, it's still not understood as well as it probably should be. For instance, you've seen this cross at the uh, front of the chancel every time you've come to worship here. And if, you've, uh, if you're a visitor, this may be the first time you're here, you've probably seen a cross very much like this one somewhere before. This cross with a vertical beam, a horizontal beam, and a circle tying it all together is known as a Celtic cross. Style of cross comes from Ireland and Scotland uh, and is used by both Catholics and Protestants in those countries. Um, and it predates the Reformation, which is why it's used by both Catholics and Protestants. Originally, it started being used because the constant moisture of the Isles of Ireland uh, and Scotland led to wooden grave markers rotting away. They would use a cross uh, to mark a grave and the wood would rot away so quickly that people were thinking this wasn't much of a memorial. So they found that if they used stone, it wouldn't wear away, it wouldn't rot away, certainly anywhere near as quickly. However, within a decade, the stone that they used just in the normal Latin cross with the vertical and horizontal only, the arms fell down and broke off. They, the stone was too heavy to hold that shape uh, and was too brittle to hold that shape in Ireland. And so, they put the circle around the middle in order to hold up the arms, and this solution finally worked. The cross stayed up for longer than the people who put it up originally uh, were alive. And that was, that was what they were hoping, that it would be a permanent symbol of God's love. Um, by the 19th century, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and even England were known for their Celtic crosses, and a revival of interest in them led to visitors asking for a story. What do they mean? What is the story behind the symbol? And somewhere along the line, this story was designed. The Celtic cross represents the Trinity, three interconnected parts that make up one design. Like all Christian crosses, it points to Christ's death, and like most Protestant crosses, it's empty. There is no figure being crucified upon it. This reminds us that Christ rose from the dead and is not always on the cross. Within it lie three symbols of God's love for us. The vertical stroke tells us that God plants us where the Holy Spirit chooses and reaches us in compassion. The horizontal stroke reminds us that we as the body of Christ must, must reach out to the world and act in Jesus' name and way. The circle shows us that the grace of God holds us in relationship with each other and with God, even when we are too weak to carry on.
God's love with us, reaching out in Jesus' way, and the grace of the Spirit sustains us. God's grace sustains us, so the Celtic cross reminds us. Indeed, right from the beginning, God revealed God's self to us as a God of grace. In Exodus chapter 34, God is letting Moses know a little bit more about who God is. Moses has asked at the burning bush before, who are you? Well, say that I am. Okay, that gets you so far. But now he's on the, the mountain, he's bringing down the Ten Commandments, and God's asking Moses again, uh, Moses is asking God again, other way around, um, who are you? Who shall I say that you are? And God says, let me tell you who I am. Adonai, Adonai, the God of grace. The Lord is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Now, in this long list of attributes of God, uh, and it does go on further, but for our purposes, we're going to end it here for today. There is one aspect of God that God repeats, and it's evident in the cobbled-together translation that I've just read. It's not evident in most translations because translators get bored of using the same word for the same word every time through. But that word in Hebrew is chesed. Let me hear you say that, chesed. You got a ch when you say it, chesed. Excellent. Chesed means loving kindness in English, but it also means grace. This is one of these difficult to translate words that has multiple meanings depending on where it's used. Actually, kind of like grace. You know, the list of definitions that John read out to the kids is showing us that grace has all of these different definitions in it too. Well, chesed also has this. Chesed, grace, shows us that God's love will not let us go, that even when we go astray, God remains mercifully good, loyally loving, and lovingly kind. I love this word. It's, it combines grace, mercy, elegance, loyalty, and love, all in a single concept. I'm not going to try to say that again, because I think I'll lose it as we go. But let me give you an example. Every time we baptize a child, as Shirley Guthrie points out, uh, baptizing infants makes clear that before we loved and chose God, God loved and chose us. Before we decided to become members of God's family, God loved and chose us. And this baptismal water reminds us of this every week. Anytime you're in the sanctuary, I encourage you, come over to the, the baptismal font, touch the water, remember that God loved you before you even knew what love was. God loved you from the very beginning. God's love and grace are with you your whole life long. We show God's grace extending to us long before we can articulate what it actually is to respond in God's grace. Once again, like, like the circle on the Celtic cross, God's good grace holds up our relationship with God and each other, starting at the very least from our understanding of baptism, and we recognize this every time. One of the earliest Reformed baptismal liturgies reminds us beautifully of that too. This comes from the Huguenot Church, translated from French. So picture these words at the font being spoken to a child but offering chesed grace to all who are listening. Little one, 
For you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried at the last, it is accomplished. For you, he triumphed over death and rose in newness of life. For you, he ascended to reign at God's right hand. All this he did for you, little one, though you do not know it yet. And so the word of Scripture is fulfilled. We love because God loved us first. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. I I was so glad to come across that as part of our Reformed heritage from a group we don't talk about much, the Huguenots, who were in France, were persecuted by French Catholics, came to America, and didn't quite get the same connection that the Scottish Presbyterians or the Dutch Reformed uh, churches did. But they're in our same wider family of Protestants. So now, as we make a transition uh, into the Greek Bible, into the New Testament, a new word for grace appears. That word is charis, charis. It, like chesed, both of them have this cha sound in them. I love that that comes through. Uh, It, like chesed, is incredibly difficult to translate, having different forms that mean joy, charm, or loveliness alongside goodwill and merciful kindness, or even the effects of grace on a person, how they are changed by grace itself. Charis brings all of this into one word, and thus, again, we have this problem of translators using the word, like translating it differently in different places that it comes up. It's the root of the word charisma, or charisma as we tend to say in English, and charismatic for that matter. It's also, it shows up at communion in eucharist, eucharist, good grace at the table, good grace. The Apostle Paul loves to use this word charis. He spreads charis all over the known world, both in person and in his letters. In the letter to Titus that uh, Royce read this morning, Paul reminds us that the charis of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives right now by rejecting ungodly lives and the desires of this world. Paul goes on to write in his letter to the church at Ephesus, God has given charis to each one of us, measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. And on and on, through letters to Rome, to Corinth, to Thessalonica, and so on. Paul is expounding about the charis, the grace of God. It is this charis, this grace that has so inspired Paul to preach the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is the one who encouraged people to throw stones at Christians. At the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, it was Paul's followers who threw stones at his urging. This is someone who has acted abysmally, and yet in that converting moment and the road to Damascus when he saw a vision of Jesus, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
he turned his life around and preaches grace. Are we surprised then that grace is what Paul preaches? Charis. He depended on God's charis. He preached God's charis to all who would listen. If you look at Paul's journeys, in fact, throughout the New Testament, in all of the different places, and wouldn't it be nice if the New Testament were in chronological order so we could follow these and not have to take a book here and a book here and try to piece together these journeys? I digress. If you follow Paul's journeys in the New Testament, you can see just how far and wide he roamed, sometimes by his choosing and sometimes because a ship wrecked him on an island, um, which happened more than once. This is a dangerous time to be traveling in the Mediterranean, apparently. Indeed, I was struck by the image of him flitting from city to city, staying for a while and then moving on, leaving words of encouragement and correction behind. He's very much like a hummingbird, thus the image we have here, strengthening this newly flowering church cross Paul innating to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit as revealed in the crucified and risen Christ. And I, I pray your grace for that pun. <laughs> Paul understands God's grace as pertaining to all people, not just those who met Jesus in person, not just Jesus's people, the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles, the nations of the world. Paul understood that God's grace covered everyone, all people everywhere. And through his preaching, he taught about this grace, this charis, to everyone he encountered. He was convinced that the only response to that amazing grace, that wonderful grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, was living lives made holy by God in gratitude for all that God has done. Grace, God's good grace, leads to gratitude and good action. This is the two parts of what it is to follow in Jesus' name. Indeed, Paul believed in grace for all people so strongly that even when he was imprisoned, and a great earthquake shattered the doors, and he and all of the other inmates could have walked out, could have made their way out of the prison safely. Paul said, no, we will stay here, and convinced all of these inmates to remain in the prison just so that the jailer would not receive all of their punishments together. The one who had been holding them in prison, Paul had compassion and grace for in this miraculous moment. He knew that the grace of God extended even to the very people who were agents of oppression. And through his preaching, he caused those agents of oppression to turn into agents of grace and gratitude. For indeed, that jailer and his entire family converted to following Jesus Christ based on Paul's action when he could have and would justly have been able to walk out the door when an earthquake opens all of the doors in a prison. I think that's a good indicator. But Paul said, no, I will stay here so that God's grace can be felt even by those who are agents of oppression. God's good grace for all leads to holy gratitude. Like the circle of the Celtic cross, we remember that God sustains us in grace. Like the baptism liturgy reminds us, God holds us in God's good grace 
even before we know who God is. And like Paul's hummingbird-like missionary journeys, we know that God's good grace is for all people. And so, may the Holy One of grace continue to call you into relationship with God and each other. May the grace of Christ call you always to respond in gratitude and holy living. May the graceful Spirit fill you to overflowing with love and grace in all that you do. Amen.